are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the February 9th, 2023, Thursday's reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Nicola Fordwood. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. From the Daily Camera, Police Oversight, Panel Discusses Onboarding of New Members, written by Annie Mel. State Emissions, Lawmakers Pushing Electric Lawn Equipment, written by Nick Coltrane. Earthquake, Hope Fading as Deaths in Turkey, Syria Quake Near 12,000, written by Mehmet Guzel, Gaeth Al-Sayed, Susan Fraser, and Zainab Bill Jinzoy. Police Still Searching for Shooting Suspect, written by Mitchell Byers. And following up with miscellaneous articles. The following main articles from the Longmont Times Call. Longmont City Council, Officials Halt Renaming Push, written by Matthew Bennett. Longmont Nonprofit, Meals on Wheels, written by Dana Cady. Berthed New Construction Underway for New Bike Path, written by Austin Flusks. Texas Shooting Suspect Pleads Guilty in 2019 Attack, written by Morgan Lee and Paul J. Weber. And following up with miscellaneous articles. From the Daily Camera, Police Oversight. Panel discusses onboarding of new members. City Selects Top Independent Police Monitor Candidate, written by Annie Mel. The Boulder Police Oversight Panel, which met Wednesday night for its first regular meeting since the City Council approved the new panelists and alternates, discussed the onboarding process for the new members, selected a case for full review, and bid farewell to departing panelists. It's really wonderful to end on a note where I'm seeing this really beautiful harmony coming together and knowing the hardest part still lies ahead, said outgoing member Taisha Adams. We know that there are some significant challenges still in the ordinance, as well as City Council's understanding of what needs to be done and the public. During the meeting, Boulder Equity Officer Amy Kane said she reached out to the six new panelists and four alternate panelists to schedule an orientation before their first meeting on March 8th. Until that time, the panel on Wednesday agreed to have Daniel Leonard serve a second term as panel co-chair, and Hadassah Villalobos agreed to join him, replacing Ariel Amuru, whose term also ended on Wednesday. At the March meeting, the new panelists will be able to vote on the co-chairs, as well as decide who will help conduct a full review of a Boulder Police Department case. The case the panel agreed to review involves three officers who are suspected of violating the same department standard, compliance with values, rules, and general orders. Panelists also discuss trainings for new members that teach them how to review cases adding that they want to see new members and ongoing members trained on specific issues that have arisen over the years. I'm thinking arbitration is one area, and dealing with juveniles is another. Domestic violence is another. Supervisors is another, Adam said. 
There are just some themes that have been coming up and lifted up in annual reports, but there might be some other opportunities for extended learning. On Wednesday, Khan gave a brief update on the search for the new independent police monitor, who is overseen by the panelists it is responsible for training. Boulder City Manager Nuria Rivera Vendermide met with a top candidate on Tuesday. The city expects it will have more information later this week, Khan said. The three candidates are Kathy Rodriguez, Gina Torres, and Mac Muir. It is unclear who of the three candidates has been selected as the first pick. The new panelists who will begin meeting next month are Lisa Sweeney Miran, Jason Savella, Soledad Diaz, Madeline Strong Woodley, Sam Zhang, and Mylene Villard. The new members expands the panel from nine to eleven members and replace Amaru, Adams, and Martha Wilson. Who resigned late last year? The alternates are Kristen Drybread, Lizzie Friend, and Arlette A. B. Barlow, and Sarasak Lundgreth. Since the city council's approval and leading up to its vote on the panelists, seven complaints have been filed regarding the process for selecting the then candidates. During the most recent Boulder City Council meeting, the council appointed Claiborne Douglas. A municipal lawyer to investigate all current and future complaints related to the panel and its elections and its selection process. Oversight panelist Victor King took a minute to address the city council's drawn-out decision-making process on Wednesday, which he said was very tense. It's very apparent that some city council members still don't understand what we do and are very misinformed on our purpose. He said. I just want to add that for future communication committee stuff regarding having any audience with them, so they really understand what our purpose is, because clearly they don't. State emissions, lawmakers pushing electric lawn equipment. Bill includes rebates for electric lawnmowers, leaf, and snowblowers. Written by Nick Coltrane. Some Colorado Democrats are taking a bigger and better swing at addressing climate change this year, but first, it needs to survive a process that killed last year's effort. State Senator Chris Hansen, a Denver Democrat, brought forward a bill this year that, if passed, would add interim goals and a more stringent timeline for reducing greenhouse greenhouse gas emissions, encourage people to buy electric lawn equipment. And focus state retirement decisions away from pollution, among other things. The bill, SB 23016, already survived its first hurdle, passing along a party line vote in its first committee, but drawing praise and concern along the way. Hansen, who was running for Denver mayor, hasn't shied away from the ambition of the effort. If implemented. It would touch every part of the economy, he said. He posed its goals as a question, step by step, and sector by sector. How do we move toward decarbonization and electrification? Some business groups and Republicans have expressed skepticism at the proposal. We're moving the goalposts. The transition to green energy is happening in Colorado, and I want to be clear: no one opposes this. Colorado Competitive Council Executive Director Rachel Beck testified, but she noted closures of power plants around the state and the need for economic transition. We need to show these plans work before doubling down on them. The bill would set 2050 as the goal for a hundred percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Currently, the state has a goal of ninety percent reduction in greenhouse gases by then. Compared to 2005, the big current milestone is 50 percent by 2030. Hansen's bill would add a 65 percent target for 2035, 80 percent by 2040, and 90 percent by 2045. I wouldn't say our climate goals are aggressive. I would say necessary. Hansen said, "We can all feel it, right? Wildfires, droughts." Shorter ski seasons. 
It shows up in Colorado in a very pronounced way. In fact, a more pronounced way than many other states because of our climate and geography. While the bill still needs to clear a couple more steps in the Senate, it has the backing of Democratic state representatives Emily Serrata, also of Denver, and Karen McCormick of Longmont in the House. We're in a climate emergency, and we need to ensure that our state goals are meeting what our scientists tell us we need to do to ensure a habitable planet, Sirota said. The bill includes provisions to move the state along that emissions reduction path in what may be most immediately felt by consumers. It would create a 30% point of sale tax credit for electric lawn equipment and snowblowers. If fully implemented, it would cost the state about $11 million per year. Nonpartisan legislative staff analysis estimates it would apply to some 200,000 purchases per year. It drew particular praise from the Colorado chapter of the Public Interest Research Group, a consumer advocacy organization. Pound for pound, Gas-powered leaf blowers and lawnmowers result in a surprising amount of ozone pollution, Kristen Schatz, a clean air advocate for the organization, said. Using a leaf blower for an hour can equal the same amount of emissions as driving a car from Denver to Los Angeles, according to the California Air Resources Board. Another bill with a similar intent died on the calendar last year, meaning it was never pulled back or voted down. It simply didn't win approval before the constitutionally mandated end of the legislative year. Senate President Steve Fenberg, a Boulder Democrat, called this year's effort a big bill and one that could take a while to reach the governor's desk. He noted that it has money attached to it, so it needs to go through the budget process. I think the goals are part of it, but there are other aspects of it that are more practical, more immediate, Fenberg said. Obviously, goals are important, but I think progress towards those goals is the most important thing. Governor Polis, through a spokesperson, did not endorse the renewed effort, but highlighted past actions and current goals. Governor Polis, in partnership with the legislature, has taken bold climate action with the goal to set Colorado on a path to achieving 100% renewable energy by 2040. And the governor will review bills as they move through the process, spokesperson Melissa Dorkin said. In his own budget proposal, Polis called for $120 million in tax credits for clean energy, which would include up to $10 million for electric lawn equipment, up to $75 million for clean transportation that includes tax credits for electric vehicles and bicycles, and up to $30 million in incentives for manufacturers' emission reduction projects and a transition to sustainable aviation fuels, among other things. Will Tor, executive director of the Colorado Energy Office, said soon after the governor's budget presentation that they expect the electric bike rebate to be of, of a particular interest given how quickly e-bike vouchers in Denver were snapped up. The electric vehicle rebate is also intended to build off prior efforts and money included in the Federal Inflation Reduction Act. In an interview, Hansen emphasized the alignment between his bill and the governor's proposal on electric lawn equipment. He said science calls for a more urgent timeline, an urgency he argues voters have endorsed. Earthquake Hope fading as deaths in Turkey, Syria quake near 12,000. Written by Mehmet Guzel, Gayeth Alsayed, Susan Fraser, and Zeynep Bil Jin Soy. The Associated Press. Gezentep, Turkey. With hope of finding survivors fading, stretched rescue teams in Turkey and Syria searched Wednesday for signs of life and the rubble of thousands of buildings toppled by the world's deadliest earthquake in more than a decade. The confirmed death toll approached 12,000. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan visited the especially hard-hit Hatate province, where more than 3,300 people died and entire neighborhoods were destroyed. 
residents there have criticized the government's response, saying rescuers were slow to arrive. Erdogan, who faces a tough battle for re-election in May, acknowledged shortcomings in the response to Monday's 7.8 magnitude earthquake, but said the winter weather had been a factor. The earthquake destroyed the runway in Hatay's airport, further disrupting the response. It is not possible to prepare, be prepared for such a disaster, Erdogan said. We will not leave any of our citizens uncared for. He also hit back at critics, saying, Dishonorable people were spreading lies and slander about the government's response. Turkish authorities say they are targeting disinformation, and an internet monitoring group said access to Twitter was restricted, despite it being used by survivors to alert rescuers. Search teams from more than two dozen countries have joined tens of thousands of local emergency personnel in Syria and Turkey. But the scale of destruction from the quake and its powerful aftershocks was so immense and spread over such a wide area, including a region isolated by Syria's ongoing civil war, that many people were still awaiting help. Experts say the survival window for those trapped under the rubble or otherwise unable to obtain basic necessities was closing rapidly. At the same time, they said it was too soon to abandon hope. The first 72 hours are considered to be critical, said Stephen Godby, a natural hazards expert at Nottingham Trent University in England. The survival ratio on average within 24 hours is 74%, and after 72 hours, it is 22%, and by the fifth day, it is 6%. Rescuers at times used excavators or picked gingerly through debris. With thousands of buildings toppled, it was not clear how many people might still be caught in the rubble. In the Turkish city of Malatya, Bodies were placed side by side on the ground and covered in blankets while rescuers waited for vehicles to pick them up, according to former journalist Ozel Pekal, who said he saw eight bodies pulled from the ruins of a building. Pekal, who took part in the rescue efforts, said he thinks at least some of the victims froze to death as temperatures dipped to minus 6 degrees Celsius, 21 Fahrenheit. As of today... There is no hope left in Malatya, Bakal said by telephone. No one is coming out alive from the rubble. Road closures and damage in the region made it hard to access all the areas that need help, he said, and there was a shortage of rescuers where he was. Our hands cannot pick up anything because of the cold, said Bakal. Work machines are needed. The region was already beset by more than a decade of civil war in Syria. Millions have been displaced within Syria itself, and millions more have sought refuge in Turkey. Turkey's president said the country's death toll passed 9,000. The Syrian health ministry said the death toll in government-held areas climbed past 1,200. At least 1,600 people have died in the rebel-held northwest, according to the volunteer first responders, known as the White Helmets. That brought the overall total to nearly 12,000. Tens of thousands more are injured. Stories of rescues continue to provide hope that some people still trapped may be found alive. A crying newborn still connected by the umbilical cord to her deceased mother was rescued Monday in Syria. In Turkey's Karaman Maras, rescuers pulled a three-year-old boy from the rubble, and rescuers sent by the Israeli military saved a two-year-old boy. But David Alexander, a professor of emergency planning and management at University College London, said data from past earthquakes suggested the likelihood of survival was now slim, particularly for individuals who suffered serious injuries. Statistically, today is the day when we are going to stop finding people, he said. That doesn't mean we should stop searching. Alexander cautioned that the final death toll may not be known for weeks because of the sheer amount of rubble. The last time an earthquake killed so many people was 2015, 
when 8,800 died in a magnitude 7.8 earthquake in Nepal. A 2011 earthquake in Japan triggered a tsunami, killing nearly 20,000 people. Many of those who survived the earthquake lost their homes and were forced to sleep in cars, government shelters, or outdoors amid rain and snowfall in some areas. We don't have a tent. We don't have a heating stove. We don't have anything. Our children are in bad shape, as in Kurt 27 said. We did not die from hunger or the earthquake, but we will die freezing from the cold. The disaster comes at a sensitive time for Erdogan, who faces an economic downturn and high inflation. Perceptions that his government mismanaged the crisis could hurt his standing. He said the government would distribute 10,000 Turkish lira, $532, to affected families. Kemal Kilik Daroglu, the leader of Turkey's main opposition party, blamed the devastation on Erdogan's two-decade rule, saying he had not prepared for the country for a disaster and accusing him of misspending funds. In their effort to crack down on disinformation related to earthquake response, police said they had detained 18 people and identified more than 200 social media accounts suspected of spreading fear and panic. Lafayette Mobile Home Park Please still search for shooting suspect, victim in recovery. Written by Mitchell Byers. Lafayette police are still searching for the suspect in a shooting at a mobile home park Tuesday afternoon. According to police radio traffic, dispatchers around 1.50 p.m. Tuesday received a report of a shooting at Lafayette Gardens, 11700 East South Boulder Road. When officers arrived on the scene, they found a man with a single gunshot wound outside a mobile home, a Wednesday news release stated. Police provided aid, and the man was taken to a nearby hospital. Meanwhile, the shooter fled the scene on foot. Lafayette Police Deputy Chief Brian Rosie Paiva said the victim is recovering at the hospital. The news release stated the incident appeared to be a targeted shooting and police do not believe there is a danger to the general public. Police searched the area around the shooting, but did not locate the suspect Tuesday. The search prompted a shelter-in-place warning for nearby residents, and also caused several nearby schools to move to secure status. Rosie Pajla said police were continuing the search for the suspect Wednesday and were following up on leads. Boulder Valley School District spokesman Randy Barber said there will be extra patrols and security at nearby schools, but no campuses will be officially placed on any secure, secure status. Lafayette police tweeted that the suspect is believed to be armed. He was described as a bald, light-skinned Hispanic man wearing either a white or gray sweatshirt. According to the news release, he was also wearing a black sweatshirt and tan pants. Residents near South Boulder Road, east of Public Road, and south of Baseline Road are asked to review videos from their home security systems and upload any footage that may feature the suspect at bit.ly slash 3 uppercase h uppercase k lowercase c uppercase p lowercase c uppercase Q. Anyone who sees the suspect is asked to call 911 or 303-441-4444 in non-emergency situations. Residents with other information to share about this case may contact the Lafayette Police Department at 303-665- Five five seven one. Humane Society of Boulder Valley, free adoptions, written by Shubhasika Singh. Humane Society of Boulder Valley is offering free adoptions for animals one year old and older, starting Saturday through Tuesday. The center is offering waived adoption fees for any animal that is a year and older who has been in the care for more than fourteen days.
Currently, the center has 55 animals up for adoption that include puppies. More information can be found on their website at www.boulderhumane.org slash feb hyphen 11 hyphen 14 hyphen 2023 hyphen free hyphen adoptions hyphen four hyphen animals hyphen one hyphen year hyphen and hyphen older civil rights firing of weld county librarian was illegal investigation finds written by elizabeth hernandez an investigation by the colorado civil rights division concluded that a weld county librarian district violated state anti-discrimination laws when it fired a librarian in 2021 after she objected to the cancellation of programs she had planned for youth of color and LGBTQ teens. The division issued determination letters Wednesday to the High Plains Library District, finding it violated state prohibitions on discriminatory firing and retaliation, as well as to three employees, whom the division said violated the law barring the aiding and abetting of discrimination. The finding is significant, as it's among the first in the country by a state government that concluded censorship targeted at LGBTQ youth or youth of color is a violation of anti-discrimination laws, said Iris Halprin, the attorney representing fired librarian Brookie Parks. Representatives of the High Plains Library District did not respond to a request for comment Wednesday afternoon. The determination by the Civil Rights Division paves the way for a mediation process that could end in the library district meeting the state's request or trigger further legal action. This whole entire crisis around censorship has been manufactured by a small minority of radical individuals who really are hiding discrimination and retaliatory processes behind the rhetoric of something that may sound more palatable to society, Halpern said. We've seen this over and over, and I hope we all come together and realize all of us are important to American society and deserve to be heard and participate fully in our public sphere equally. In February 2021, Parks, who had worked in the teen department of the Erie Community Library for three years, filed state and federal discrimination complaints, alleging she was fired by the Weld County Library District in December 2021 after she pushed back on policy changes that leadership had used to instruct Parks to cancel or alter her teen programming. Shortly before Parks was fired, the High Plains Library District Board of Trustees approved a policy stating library programs should not be intended to persuade participants to a particular point of view or be intentionally inflammatory or polarizing. Parks's supervisors pointed to the policies when telling her to rename the Erie Library's Read Woke Book Club because the word woke was polarizing, and to cancel two programs she'd planned, a teen anti-racism workshop and a teen program focused on LGBTQ history. After Parks pushed back on the renaming and cancellation of the programs, she was issued a written warning for her negative behavior and failure to attend to important details of her job, according to the Civil Rights Division's finding. When Parks submitted a rebuttal to the warning, she was fired, according to the state investigation. Based on the surrounding circumstances, the evidence indicates that High Plains Library District warned and ultimately discharged Parks for pretextual, unsubstantiated reasons and or for advocating on behalf of youth of color, LGBTQ plus youth, and her programs which serve and or target marginalized youth, the state investigation concluded. The evidence is sufficient to give rise to an inference of unlawful discrimination based on Parks's protected class, association to youth of color and LGBTQ plus youth. Parks told the Denver Post on Wednesday that she was feeling a mix of emotions, Relief, 
validation, and appreciation, and was overwhelmed by the stress of the past year. In addition to the financial burden of losing her jobs, Park said she experienced reputational damage as she tried to find a new job, since she has since found a new library position. This is not how libraries should be operating, and I know similar things are happening elsewhere and in public schools too, Park said. They should be held accountable. They should have to be inclusive and support LGBTQ youth and youth of color and not be able to silence these kids. They should be offering services to them. Attempts at library censorship, from book banning to cunning programming, have proliferated across the country, led by politically conservative leaders and largely have focused on books and events about LGBTQ issues and race. The number of attempts to ban or restrict library resources in schools, universities, and public libraries have soared across the United States, according to 2022 data from the American Library Association. Between January 1st and August 31st of last year, the association documented 681 attempts to ban or restrict library resources, with 1,651 unique book titles targeted. In all of 2021, the association reported 729 attempts to censor library resources, targeting 1,597 books, which represented the highest number of attempted book bans since the organization began compiling the information more than 20 years ago. What does it mean to have your history or access to resources and voices that can support you and talk to your life experience removed from you in an incredibly public discourse that's meant to shame and humiliate, Halpern said. There is real harm to victims here. There are no obituaries in the Daily Camera today. And from the Longmont Times call, Longmont City Council, officials halt renaming push, written by Matthew Bennett. Mount Evans Drive in Longmont won't be renamed anytime soon, if at all. During Tuesday's City Council study session, Councilman Tim Waters asked the council to reconsider its previous decision to discuss forming a community name change committee, arguing that city staff already had enough on its plate. Waters wasn't necessarily opposed to the idea of such a committee, but clearly thought the city had more urgent matters. I've never had a constituent in Ward 1 express a concern about the name of their street, Waters, who has served on the council for five years, said Tuesday. Ward 1 includes Mount Evans Drive. Mount Evans is named after John Evans, who served as governor of Colorado Territory from 1862 until his resignation in 1865, following the Sand Creek Massacre. More than 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho people, many of whom were women, children, and elders, were killed in the brutal attack that occurred on November 29, 1864. Evans, who is widely condemned, received blame for the massacre, which is the deadliest day in Colorado history, according to HistoryColorado.org. On January 24, the Longmont City Council voted unanimously to discuss possibly forming a community name change committee to review troublesome street names. Councilman Sean McCoy, who made the original motion to discuss a naming committee, said community leaders should not wait until their constituents are outraged to react to cultural insensitivity. It shows a sense of tone deafness if we don't consider that, McCoy said during Tuesday's study session. I know it's easy for folks to give flippant answers that we should be doing this, that, and the other thing instead of name-changing. Councilwoman Marcia Martin said the possibility of creating a name-change committee had not been well-received, particularly on social media. It gets mentioned every time somebody complains about red light runners or parking violations or almost anything, Martin said Tuesday. It's like the city council has time to change the names of the streets, but it doesn't have time time to fix whatever it is they're complaining about. Ultimately, the council voted unanimously to table its discussion concerning a community name-changing committee 
until it identifies its priorities at its upcoming retreat. During its meeting on November 17th, the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board unanimously recommended changing the name of Mount Evans, a more than 14,000-foot peak in Clear Creek County, to Mount Blue Sky. Longmont Nonprofit, Meals on Wheels, organization rolls out its three-millionth meal, written by Dana Cady. A decades-long staple of the Longmont community, Longmont Meals on Wheels celebrated a major milestone Wednesday as the nonprofit surpassed three million meals served to clients since its founding in 1969. The nonprofit marked the occasion at its regular community lunch, held weekdays at the Longmont Senior Center, 910 Longs Peak Ave. Around 75 guests filled the cafeteria for the free lunch, which featured a pot roast meal and a cake decorated with icing reading three million meals and counting. We have a great community that we live in and a lot of support, said LMOW Executive Director Carla Hale. Without it, there's no way we would have made it to where we are today. Prior to the celebration, LMOW staff and board members took the three millionth meal to the home of the recipient, Wes Evans. Evans has been getting meals delivered to his home for around two years. Before that, he spent several years volunteering for LMOW as a driver. I wanted to give back to the community, and now it's my turn, Evans said. He was presented with a certificate of special congressional recognition for LMOW from the office of U.S. Representative Joe Neguse, Democrat Lafayette, representative for Colorado's 2nd District. She also announced that the nonprofit served nearly 107,000 meals last year. We are really growing thanks to all of you, Hale told the crowd. LMOW also commemorated its three millionth first meal by presenting it to a lucky lunch guest. Anne Hurst, who was given balloons and flowers alongside her food, said she was honored to be part of the celebration. It's tremendous, she said. I know a lot of people who do Meals on Wheels, and it's so good for them. The event drew members of local LMOW partners, like the Longmont Community Foundation and Longmont United Hospital. City Judge Robert Frick, who's been volunteering with LMOW for around seven years, came with other city employees, including a few probation and police officers. The staff here are wonderful, Frick said. They're fun to work with and always positive. The nonprofit has held similar events for significant benchmarks in the past, such as 1 million meals in 2002 and 2 million in 2014. Katie Weiser, Development and Communications Director, said the next million meal milestone might arrive even sooner than expected. We're happy to be here and happy to do it, she said. It's nice to feel the love back. Berthed, construction now underway for new bike path, expected to open in the late summer or early fall, written by Austin Flesks. Construction is underway for another project in Berthed's master plan for its parks, a new bike path. Crews began working at the end of last year on the bike path, located between Loveland Reservoir and US-287, as part of the Berthed Reservoir Parks and Trails master plan according to town administrator Chris Kirk. Kirk said when the town put together its master plan in 2018 and into 2019, it received community feedback on wanted amenities, which included a place for bike riders to go, with Kirk noting that Berthoud is a bike-focused and friendly community. He added the town also was already working in the area on what will become the 86-acre Richardson Park, so putting in the bike park all made sense. The park, which Kirk said will cost $2.2 million and will cover roughly 24 acres with room for additional expansion in the future, is being built at the north end of Meadow Lark Drive and will have biking features for every skill level, according to the town website. This will include a number of things, such as a bicycle playground designed to offer beginner bikers a variety of fun obstacles that will safely build cycling confidence, 
a momentum-maximizing asphalt pump park made up of berms and rollers, multi-level jump lines, and a dual slalom track for the more experienced riders, as well as mountain bike skills course. The first phase of construction will consist of infrastructure work, including building the entry road to the park at the end of the road, a soft surface parking lot, a complete four-season heated restroom, and utility infrastructure, according to the town website. The second phase of the project, which will include the actual park itself, is expected to start in the spring. It is anticipated the park will officially open in the late summer or early fall. Kirk said this park is functioning like many other parts of the master plan in trying to address as many birthed groups as possible. As a community, we are focused on offering opportunities to get outdoors on foot or on bike, he said. More information on the master plan can be found at birthed.org. Texas shooting suspect pleads guilty in 2019 attack. Written by Morgan Lee and Paul J. Weber. The Associated Press. El Paso, Texas. A Texas man pleaded guilty Wednesday to federal hate crime and weapons charges in the racist attack at an El Paso Walmart in 2019, which prosecutors say was preceded by the gunman posting an online screed that warned of a Hispanic invasion. Patrick Crucius, 24, showed little emotion while shackled in an El Paso courtroom just a few miles from the store where he was accused of killing 23 people, including citizens of Mexico, in what remains one of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history. Sentencing is not scheduled until later this year, but the U.S. government had previously announced it wouldn't seek the death penalty. Crucius waived most of his rights to appeal on a total of 90 federal charges, which U.S. District Judge David Guadarrama said would each carry a life sentence. I plead guilty, he said. Crucius had originally pleaded not guilty before federal prosecutors took the death penalty off the table. He could still receive the death penalty, however, under separate state capital murder charges in Texas, although it remains unclear when the case might go to trial. Albert Hernandez, whose sister and brother-in-law were killed in the attack, was one of about 40 people with close ties to the victims in the court gallery. He called Crucius a coward who was trying to save his own skin by pleading guilty in federal court. This guy knew what he was doing. It was premeditated, Hernandez said of the shooting. He came here to take care of business. Crucius surrendered to police after the massacre, saying, I'm the shooter, and that he was targeting Mexicans, according to court records. Prosecutors have said he drove more than 10 hours from his hometown near Dallas to the largely Latino border city and published a document online shortly before the shooting that said it was in response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. The August 3, 2019 shooting happened on a busy weekend at a Walmart that is typically popular with shoppers from Mexico and the U.S., in addition to those killed, more than two dozen were injured and hundreds more were scarred by being present or having a loved one hurt. Prosecutors presented a detailed narrative of the attack during Wednesday's plea hearing, describing how it began with a pedestrian gunned down in the parking lot before Crusius opened fire on people at a fundraiser for a soccer team. As Crusius moved inside the store, Prosecutors said nine people were cornered and shot to death at a bank near the entrance. Among them were husband and wife Jordan and Andre Achondo, whose infant son survived with broken bones in a hand. And from the obituaries, Charles Drage, September 15, 1943, through January 7, 2023. On Saturday, January 7th, Charles Chuck Justice Drage, loving husband, dad, grandpa, and brother, passed away at the age of 79. Chuck lived an incredibly abundant life, with no regrets, and a life and left a beautiful legacy. Chuck was born on September 15, 1943, in Longmont, Colorado, to Eleanor and Roy Drage. His early years were spent in Crook, Colorado. It's here that Chuck and his brothers, Bob and Donald, as well as sister Carolyn, 
lived the best of a small-town, rural community life. They learned about true hard work, family values, and the grace of God. Life took the family to Longmont, where Chuck attended Longmont High School. He continued on to Colorado State University, where he was involved in ROTC, and here he discovered his love of flying. He was very involved in all things music, to include being a talented trumpet player in multiple bands. He was an active member of Alpha Tau Omega fraternity. Chuck was a Rams fan for life. Soon after graduation, Chuck started pilot training at Vance Air Force Base, and then on December 18, 1966, Chuck married his college sweetheart, Carol Jaffe. They recently celebrated 56 wonderful years of marriage. In 1967, commitment to service and love of country took Chuck and Carol to Beale Air Force Base in California. He was a proud Air Force pilot and served in the Vietnam War. Upon completion of his military service, he joined American Airlines and enjoyed 30 years as a commercial airline pilot on both domestic and international routes. Chuck absolutely loved his job and forever recognized the rare fortune of really doing what you enjoy. Life with American Airlines led Chuck and Carol to Crystal Lake, Illinois. It's here that they raised three children, Stephanie, Scott, and Brent, and they were the pride of his life. He was actively involved in all areas of their lives and held many roles, some to include soccer coach, scout leader, running partner, homework helper, ski buddy, faith leader, supportive and loving parent, and overwhelmingly influence of all that is good. Chuck and Carol had the good fortune of returning to their beloved Colorado in 1998 and settled in Evergreen. This chapter was a favorite in Chuck's life, and he reveled in being back home, able to pursue retirement adventures and spend time with Carol and surrounding family. Chuck was an athlete, an avid runner, hiker, and skier. He tackled adventures across Colorado and beyond. Together, they traveled Colorado, the U.S., and numerous countries around the world. He was blessed with the ability to be intimately involved in the lives of his two granddaughters, Sophie and Lindsay, and his grandson, Benjamin, and attended hundreds of piano and violin recitals, holiday plays and musicals, soccer games and ski races, class events and field trips. He was 100% present in their lives and considered every moment with these kids to be precious. Chuck is profoundly missed by all who loved him. He touched the lives of many and always asked how he may help others with no expectation of anything in return. One great friend best described how we feel with the following words. We pray for, we pray for strength to live life like Chuck would, smiling, helping others, and caring genuinely. He loved God and attended Rockland Community Church and served generously in leadership roles for many years. He loved his family, to include his wife, kids, grandkids, siblings, pets, and others near and far. He loved his country, Colorado, and the community, fought for freedom, volunteered endlessly, and embraced conservatism and the Republican Party. He expressed his love for all of these things every day with unapologetic strength and pride. Chuck was preceded in death by his parents, Roy and Eleanor Drage. He is survived by his wife, Carol Drage, daughter, Stephanie Siebold, sons, Scott Drage and Brent Drage, granddaughters, Sophie and Lindsay Siebold, grandson, Benjamin Drage, brothers, Robert Drage, Donald Drage, sister, Carolyn Crawford, and many nieces and nephews. A celebration of life will be held on Saturday, April 22nd at 1 p.m., at Rockland Community Church in Golden. In lieu of flowers, donations may be sent to Rockland Community Church, Tunnels to Towers Foundation, and Evergreen Animal Protective League in Chuck's honor. David Allen Lange, March 18, 1966 through January 7, 2023. David Allen Lange was born on March 18, 1966 in Chicago, Illinois, to Rodney and Laura Lange. He passed away peacefully January 7, 2023, at the age of 56, in Los Animas, Colorado. He enjoyed fishing, being in the mountains, and volunteering. 
spending his free time with veterans, he leaves behind his only child, Alora, his wife, Bobby, his mother, Laura, and his brother, Todd Lange. He was preceded in death by his father, Rodney Lange. Jerry Allen Nelson, September 28, 1940, through December 18, 2022. Jerry Allen Nelson, 82, passed away on Sunday, December 18, 2022. He was born on September 28, 1940, in San Antonio, Texas, to Adele and Gerald Nelson. After graduating from Alamo Heights High School and time at Brown College, he moved to Los Angeles, California. There, he began his 32-year career working for the phone company. He also met and married the mother of his children. In 1972, after vacationing in Colorado, he transferred from Pacific Bell to Mountain Bell and moved his family to Frederick, Colorado. This is where he built a family home and lived for over 41 years. He was blessed to meet the love of his wife, Karen Nelson, and they married on June 27, 1987. They spent 40 wonderful years together. As best friends, they enjoyed traveling, gambling, live music, and country-western dancing. They had a large circle of cherished friends and welcomed all into their home. Jerry was preceded in death by his parents, Adele and Gerald Nelson, his brother, Heron Nelson, nephew, Ron Ams, and grandson, Brendan Nelson. He is survived by and the proud father of son, Gerald Allen Nelson, and wife, Jennifer, grandchildren, Ashley and Ryan, daughter, Amy Nass, and husband, Kyle, grandchildren, Alicia and Gina Alvarez, Kendall and Cameron Nas, daughter, Denise Dean, and grandson, James Dean. Papa and his grandson, James, held a close connection from the time he arrived. They would often tease one another and were truly best buddies. He is also survived by his brother, Roger Nelson, and wife, Alice, of San Antonio, nephews, Mark and Sean Nelson, sister, Julia Nelson Schooner, also of San Antonio, niece, Kim Ams, his mother and father-in-law, John and Camille Baumgartner of St. Petersburg, Florida, several brothers and sisters-in-law, and many beloved nieces and nephews. Jerry was a proud season ticket holder for the Denver Broncos, in which he followed his team to attend and celebrate two Super Bowls. He loved to play golf, fish, and hunt, and was also an avid NASCAR fan, attending races when he could. He was a highly skilled craftsman and used his many talents to build and remodel homes after his retirement from the phone company. He was a one-of-a-kind and will be truly missed. A memorial service was held at Concordia Lutheran Church, 16801 Hubner Road, San Antonio, Texas, on Monday, January 2nd, 2023, at 11 a.m. A celebration of life will be held at the American Legion Post 32 at 315 South Bowen Street, Longmont, Colorado, 80501, from 1 o'clock to 3 p.m., open house, on February 11th, 2023. In lieu of flowers, the family requests that donations be made to American Legion Post 32 with In Memory of Jerry Nelson or Scholarship Fund in the memo. Jerry was a member of Sons of the American Legion, and the fund gives out eight local scholarships yearly. Thank you for joining us for the reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Nicola Fordwood. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.